wrath of the Lord. He has some questions for the Lord. And, and as we go to prayer before the sermon, I just think it would be appropriate this morning to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who also are seeing uh, the destruction around them and the persecution as we come to this text today. So 785 for Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 11 verses together this morning. Please follow along as I read. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we are reminded of the times when we ourselves are faced with questions as we look at the world around us and the destruction and the violence and the wickedness. And we are reminded to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution even today. That you would strengthen them, that you would raise them up, that your word would strengthen and encourage them. And even now, Lord, as we look at this prophecy, we look at your hand and how it works in the world, that we would be moved to praise and glorify you, that we would be moved to trust you in your sovereign goodness in your time, that you are not a God who is forgotten or fails to see. Please be with your servant, Toby, as he brings the, the, the message from the text this morning, that you would strengthen him, give him boldness and clarity, and may you work in our hearts to change us and transform us for your glory. In your name's sake we pray. Amen. For the next four weeks, <clears throat> we will be walking through the prophecy of Habakkuk, uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. As a complete Side note that has nothing to do with this text. It, it, stri it struck me as I thought about the way that God in the Old Testament continually raised up men to lead His people by speaking His Word to them. And I wanted to just say for one minute, for those of you men who are under the age of 50 even, could you imagine that one day the Lord might raise you up to lead His people 
by teaching His Word in a ministry of the Word and in a ministry of prayer. And I would encourage you, consider it. Because the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the church goes on as God raises up one generation after another. And if you're over the age of 50, taint too late. Because God can raise up His men any time He wants. But we need to take that seriously. Pastors and elders do not just appear out of the air. They are raised up in local churches. They are nurtured by that congregation. They are taught. They are trained. They gain experience through teaching, through ministering to others. And then God in His goodness has a congregation recognize this man is an elder. I leave that with you to consider because God's church needs God's men to be raised up by God to serve them. This book of Habakkuk is part of what is called the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. Minor not because they are unimportant, but minor because their length is short in comparison to, say, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, who's actually a contemporary of Habakkuk. And uh, to understand where we're at in history, uh, Israel has been divided in two for centuries by now. And uh, the, the, the ten tribes in the north, the northern kingdom called Israel, uh, has been destroyed by the Assyrians because of their sin. God brought judgment in 722 B.C., and they are down. And we're about a hundred years later, and we're in the south, in what is known in the Bible as Judah. So when you see Israel and Judah, those two different words after, say, Rehoboam, uh, you see Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. But we're in Judah, and things are not going much better in Judah. Because the same way that sin spread through Israel, it has been spreading in Judah, the same way it's taking over. Yes, there, were, there are periods of religious reform, there are periods of faithfulness, but none of them last. They're all short-lived. And now in Judah, sin is stretching its fingers through the nation like an evil shadow, swallowing it up, overtaking it. And Habakkuk's prophecy is the record of his interactions with the Lord about what's going on. Uh, what we read, what we just read, is actually the first of these. You see, unlike, unlike other prophets where their prophecy is essentially the record of their preaching, uh, Habakkuk's is more the record of his praying. It's more his prayer journal than his uh, sermon notes. And so... <clears throat> So here what we have is his prayer and the Lord's answer. Now think about your own prayer life for just a second before we dive in. When you pray about anything, I mean, if you've studied your Bible at all, you know that you can expect that God will hear, that you can expect that God cares, and that you can expect that God will answer. But I have a sneaking suspicion that we expect more than that. I mean, it's right and good to, to expect those things, but I, I have this sneaking suspicion that hidden away in the inner recesses of our hearts, 
We expect God to answer in a particular way and in a particular time that we have already pre-approved. You ever pre-approve your prayers? Like this is the only, this is the circumstance and this is the only thing that possibly makes sense to the Lord, right? How could God answer any other way but then to do this? John Newton prayed that God would grow him spiritually. That, that, that he was a slave trader turned pastor, and he wrote 300 hymns. One of them is called, uh, I think the original title was Prayer Answered Through Crosses. But uh, you, might, you could Google, I asked the Lord that I might grow, and you'll be able to hear it. But he asked the Lord to grow, that he would grow in holiness and faith, and God would give him grace. And he kind of expected that the Lord would just zap him and everything would get better. And he says, instead what happened is God actually pushed down on him and showed him the depth of his own sin. You wouldn't expect that in response to praying for holiness, would you? It's almost become, it's almost become a byword and a cliche to, you know, to say, oh, beware of praying for patience, right? Because you know what will happen. God will press down on you to show you simply how impatient you are. But we have this way of prescribing God's answers for Him in our minds. We're like, yes, I, not my will, but yours be done, asterisk. Uh, I, I understand you, you do know what I want here, right, and, and when I want it. We have these kinds of hidden expectations, but God does, not always, God does not always answer as we expect. God does not always answer in the time that we expect either. Sometimes it can seem like our prayer signal got crossed on the way to the throne of grace. What's going on here? I thought you would have answered by now. But dear friends, we must learn what Habakkuk learned, and that is that God works in unexpected ways even when he seems absent. God works in unexpected ways even when he seems absent. In this text, the first thing to note is that God seems absent. As you begin to read, God seems absent to Habakkuk. That's his conclusion. He has prayed and prayed, and he is still praying, and he's not seeing any answer on the horizon. God seems disengaged. God seems distant. Listen to, listen to Habakkuk. How, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk draws the conclusion that God is absent based on his circumstances. Think about Habakkuk's circumstances. In verse 3, we see that sin is pervasive. Listen to this. 
Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Strife and contention, generally speaking, means that there is hostility between everybody. Everywhere you turn, someone is arguing with the shopping clerk. Someone is getting into a fight at Walmart. Someone, I mean, this is what is happening. This is, the, this is the mark of the culture. Everyone is hostile to everybody. Everybody's railing on Twitter. Everybody's railing on Facebook. Everybody's writing blogs to, with sharp barbs in them aimed, even though veiled, at specific people. More specifically, it's not just a hostile society. This, this phrasing, that, uh, this uh, contention, actually points to legal contention. It's, it's actually a pointer to an overly litigious society. We wouldn't know anything about that, would we? The idea that anyone is going to take anyone, anyone else to court for anything. That if I feel as if you have violated me, my rights, in any particular way, I, you will pay for it in or out of court. Strife and contention. But he also says just before that, destruction and violence. People aren't just going to court. They are coming to blows. The crime rate, the violent crime rate is up. Road rage abounds. And over the smallest of things. Now, you don't have to work hard to see the relevance of this kind of setting that Habakkuk is in, do you? If I hadn't actually told you that I was describing Habakkuk, you might just say I was bemoaning the state of our society, wouldn't you? This is where we are. This is actually more relevant than the newspaper they're selling us today. Sin is pervasive, but also righteousness is persecuted. Look at verse 4. For the wicked, halfway through, for the wicked surround the righteous. Things are so upside down in this society that the ones who stand against the erosion of society's conscience, the, the, the very ones who would point people back to the God who had rescued them from Egypt, they are under attack. The immoral majority is having its way and refuses to listen to God's truth, oppresses and suppresses anyone who would attempt to do so. Now, again, we don't have to go far to see the parallels, do we? We live in a world that plugs its ears, doesn't want to hear God's Word, and actively opposes anyone who speaks it. Now, don't fall into a trap, all right? Because if you fall into this trap, you'll, be, you'll never get out. Did you know that that idea of kicking back against God's truth speaking, that's not just a cultural problem. That's actually just an out there problem. That's an in here problem. That's an in here problem. Because, dear friends, we are in, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in 
major danger when we begin to plug our ears and kick back against those who would speak God's word to us. Let me ask you, how do you respond when a loving friend comes to you to try to help you see where you've gone wrong, where you've sinned that you might change? How how, how do you respond to that? Are you faster to conviction or contention? Are you more likely to admit it to them or get angry at them? Are you more likely to be quick to listen or quick to speak in your own defense? The world would have you defend every action you ever take as reasonable and understandable and explainable. But before God, none of it is. That's why in the, in the church, in the body of Christ, we must, we, we must not simply be those who are willing to courageously speak God's Word into one another's lives for the glory of God and the good of the person we're talking to. We must be those who humbly listen to God's Word when it is spoken to us for the glory of God and the good of our own soul. Because when we don't, we're just persecuting that which is pursuing righteousness. And that's what's happening throughout his society. Sin is pervasive, righteousness is persecuted, and thirdly, the thing about his circumstances is that justice is perverted. I mean, these folks have laws. They have God's laws. They have priests to teach them God's laws so that they understand them. They have judges and officials to help enforce the laws, to do justice, and yet justice is nowhere to be found. Look at verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The legal system of that day was like a set of parents who lay out the rules, always saying, no, 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 you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, but never taking action to correct the behavior. That kind of law is paralyzed. So the kids get away with everything, right? And they're out of control and they're in a perpetual state of rebellion. And somehow the parents have the gall to shake their heads and say kids these days or blame it on someone else. Habakkuk's culture was one of moral chaos. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests to the world, and instead they're a bunch of unruly hooligans bringing shame on the name of God. And so that's why Habakkuk is going to the Lord. His circumstances make him think, what is going on here? Let me ask you one more question. How do you respond to a society like ours that is largely opposed to God? Do you tend more to scoff in arrogance 
feeling a sense of your own moral superiority? Or are you more likely to weep with a broken heart and pray? Because if you do one, you won't do the other. And if you do the other, you won't do one, the one. Habakkuk wept and prayed and prayed and prayed, but it seems there's no answer coming and he is perplexed, so he had questions. He had questions about this, the, 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 the fact that God seems absent. So let's think about his questions. There are actually two of them. The first is how long? Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, the implied is, how long shall I cry to you, violence, and you will not save? That question, how long, is all over the Bible, by the way. It is particularly in the Psalms. We read it this morning in Psalm 13. We ask it ourselves, don't we? How long, O Lord? How long? And it implies a couple of things. Firstly, how long implies that this is not Habakkuk's first prayer meeting with the Lord? He has been at this for a while. How long will I cry to you and not see an answer? This is not a one-time request. He is like the persistent widow of, in the Gospel of Luke who keeps going and going and going and going and he's wondering, when will justice come? When will things be set right? When will things change? How long? The other thing that the question how long communicates is that there's a sense to which Habakkuk feels like he has a limit. Like there's a limit to how long I can wait. How long? I mean, I'm here and I, I, I'm walking through this, but how, how long, O oh Lord, must I do that? How long will things not look good before they get better? Second question is Why? Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? He goes on when he says, you know, destruction and violence are before me. What that means is uh, it is the, the destruction and violence are the 3D IMAX theater of his life. It's all that he can see in society. It is conspicuous. You don't have to go to a certain part of town. You don't have to go to a certain alley. You don't have to go to a certain city. You don't have to do anything like that to see it. You can't go to the store. You can't go to the bank. You can't go to the coffee machine at work. You can't go anywhere without seeing the devastating darkness of society. That's what he's saying. And he wants to know why. Not just, not just why do I have to put up with it, though. He, he, he wants to know, look at, look at the way the second line in verse 3, why do you idly look at wrong? What, why, are, why does it seem like you are up there in heaven just 
looking at it, just watching it, just tolerating it. That's what he means by idly look at wrong. He doesn't question whether God can act. He's wondering why he hasn't already. Why he isn't, even at that moment. He wants some kind of answer, some reason, some explanation. Now tell me, are those questions common to your heart? How long, O Lord? Why? Has the pain of life squeezed those questions out of you as you just long to know what it is that the Lord is doing? How long will this go on? Why, why does it seem like you're just sitting there? God seems absent and Habakkuk doesn't understand. Where are you? When is the cavalry scheduled to arrive? When is relief going to come? When will you make right what is wrong? This this prayers like these are gut-wrenching. For those of us who think that the Christian experience is some kind of stoical, I never feel the pain of this life or of circumstances or of uh, hurt from others or anything like that, this, this blows that out of the water. Faithfulness is not marked by an absence of pain. It is good and right that we go to the Lord in our pain, seeking Him, even asking these questions. But as we do, we certainly must beware, beware casting aspersion on the character of God. Habakkuk does not do that. He asks his question. He wants to know. Why are you why why are you just sitting there? Don't blaspheme by accusing God of wrongdoing. One commentator writes this prayers expressing perplexity are appropriate so long as they are offered in a context of trust. Let your pain drive you to prayer, but make sure that your prayer is offered in faith, especially when God seems absent. But that's not all we see here. We don't just see that God seems absent. We also see that God is working. God is working. In verse 5, now typically, typically before the Lord speaks in the prophets, you have, thus says the Lord, right? You have, or and the Lord said. I mean, you just read your Old Testament. This is what happens. Well, I, this is an interpretive, uh, I'm, I'm, touching into those things that I can't be dogmatic about, but I'm telling you, 
certainly it means something that that is completely absent, that Habakkuk is going along and the Lord says, look and be amazed. That is as far as that prayer will go, son. But he doesn't answer in the singular. Isn't that interesting? Habakkuk says, where are you, Lord? And the Lord says, y'all look. All y'all. Because this conversation is one that needs to be broadcast to the public. Because this is no longer a private interaction with just Habakkuk and the Lord. This is something the nation needs to hear. This is the oracle that he sees. This is the burden that he must not only bear as the Lord speaks to him, but he is to carry this burden to the people. He is to carry this word to the people. And God says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I am doing a work in the Hebrew language is an ongoing verb. It's not, don't worry, I'm going to do something about this. God says, right now, as I seem absent, I am doing a work. I am. God does care. Dear friends, the very fact that God says this to Habakkuk is a reminder to him and to us that we are not sovereign. We are not omniscient, that all that we see is not all that there is, that all that we experience is not all that's happening, that our finite perspective is just that, finite. He's saying, why aren't you at work? And God stops him in his tracks and says, I am. But this work is unseen. It's unseen. Habakkuk can't see what's going on. That's, that's why God calls him, look among the nations and see. Pay attention, sit up. As much as it seems like God is absent, as much as it seems that God is just watching world history from the sidelines, as much as it seems that God is watching society go down the moral drain, He is not. I am doing a work. You been there? It's a helpful reminder when we have our blinders on, when all we see is our one little corner of the world, when all we see is our one little church, our one little nation. And we forget that Jesus is building His church throughout the world at His pace, through His people, by His Spirit. And that hell itself will not prevail. It's also actually a helpful reminder when we don't see visible fruit that we would like to see in our ministry. Whether it's in your one-to-one gospel conversation, as you seek to take the gospel to the end of your street and you don't see visible fruit immediately. It's helpful to remember, isn't it? That even though you might say, well, God's not working here. 
God says, I, I am doing a work. The fact that we can't see visible fruit in our friendships, in our parenting, at any given point, does not mean that God is not at work. Friend, you may, you may look at your life and you may ask how long and you may look at your life and you may say why and you may look at your circumstances and do that, but that's, that little phrase right there reminds you that no matter how much you cannot see, the God you cannot see is working. Is working. It's unseen, but also it's unexpected. Oh, it's unseen, so I just have to wait a little longer to get what I want out of this, right? Is that what you're saying? It's not what Habakkuk, it's not what happened to Habakkuk. This is completely unexpected. That's why God says, wonder and be amazed. You wouldn't believe what I'm doing even if someone told you beforehand. If you and I were praying for the wickedness of society to be dealt with, we, we, you know, we might think, well, God, send a revival, right? Let's, go, let's, let's try some of the, more of those religious reformations that we've done in the past. But this time, we'll stick with it. We may just expect, oh, the bad people will become good people. Setting aside for just a moment that we're part of the bad people. But all the really bad people will get better. Churches will be filled. I mean, this is how we would expect God to answer this prayer, isn't it? Maybe raise up another, Lord, why don't you raise up another king like Hezekiah or like Josiah? You know, someone like that. Let's get this thing going. Well, God is raising someone up. Actually, someone's. Verse 6, it is the Chaldeans. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize the dwellings, not, seize dwellings not their own. Uh, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I imagine if this were possible, Habakkuk might want to raise up his hand and see if the Lord stuttered uh, to see, uh, did you mean to say that? Is that what you actually meant? Is there a secret meaning behind that? Is that code for someone else? Are you sure that you're sure that you're sure? that you're going to send the Chaldeans. Because that's unexpected. These people were basically unknown in the region, and yet they come to rule Babylonia. In fact, we typically associate these people, we typically call them Babylonians. But they take over Babylonia, they conquer Syria, they conquer Assyria, they conquer Palestine, they conquer Egypt, all within the span of about 20 years. And they become a superpower in the ancient Near East for a total of about 100 years. And that's it. And then Cyrus and Persia take them down. But these Chaldeans who are coming are not coming as heroes. 
They're coming as God's sword of judgment. Listen to what God had promised if they would not listen to His words and obey them. In Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. That is this nation. Listen, look at verse 8. Last line, they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. This hard-faced nation, verse 9, all their faces are forward. They are not budging one inch. Let me just summarize God's description of these Chaldeans, all right? Verse 6 essentially tells us that their fast-acting hostility knows no geographical boundary. They are a bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're a war machine, verse 7, striking fear in the hearts of all they encounter. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In verse 8, all of this swiftness and fierceness, they are fast, they are strong, they are fierce. Verses 9 and 10, they, come, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Once they set, in other words, once they set their eyes on a nation, nothing is going to stop them. Nothing. In verse 11, everything in their path will get swallowed up. They will sweep by like the wind and go on, like it was nothing. Like you build your sandcastle for hours on the beach and some very special child comes along with a bucket of water and just, and it's gone. That's what the Chaldeans could do. This piling up the dirt. When you came to a city, there'd be a wall, right? And what they would do is they would make a ramp of dirt so that their soldiers could breach the city. And they could do it just like that. You get the picture? I mean, this is, this is Hitler's Germany. This is Genghis Khan's Mongols. This is, this is Stalin's Soviet Union. This is the white witch's armies in Narnia. These are the orcs and the Urukai in Lord of the Rings. This is Isis. Now, do you see why it's such a surprising answer to prayer? Lord, Lord, when are you going to do something about this? Well, let me send some jihadists. Habakkuk never expected God to work in this way through these people. But the reality of the situation, when you look at what God is doing in the perspective of the Bible, this kind of judgment is exactly what they deserve. 
They've turned their backs on God. They've broken His law. They've refused to live under His authority. And God, in effect, hands them over to their sin. Verse 2 says, their whole society is marked by violence. And then verse 9 says, well, the Chaldeans are coming with violence. You thought you had violence? You will learn what violence means. You thought, well, you wanted to be the ruler of your own lives? You will learn what it means to be ruled by human beings. Dear friends, one of the things that is scarily true is that there are, there are simply times when we pray for things and they will get worse before they get better. And that is hard. That is really hard. Some of the people that we're praying will return to the Lord may have to endure consequences for their sin in a temporal sense as God's way of pressing them like the prodigal son into the pit of pigs longing to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. And that's hard to watch. But God is not absent. You must hold on to that. You must. You see, in this problem of rejecting God, of turning back on, backs on God, is not simply a problem for Judah in the 7th century B.C., it's actually far more enduring and universal than that. That's the problem today. Any of you can see that the world is a wicked place. Any of you can see that evil and oppression and injustice flood society. And the truth is, anyone with any sense of God wants Him to act. We want the world to be what it could be. We want the world to be what it should be. We want God to fix what's so desperately wrong. The good news is that He will. He will rain down judgment on oppressors on child abusers, on the unjust, on the evil, on the tyrannical. He will do it. And all things will be made new. New heavens. New earth. New society. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, that is great. But here's the sobering news. We are part of the problem. The problem is not out there in society. The problem is in every human soul. We are part of the evil that has corrupted this world. Whether in greater or in lesser ways. We 
are sinners. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve the eternal conscious torment in hell that the Bible describes. As surely as the wrath of the Chaldeans would come on the sinners of Judah, the wrath of God will be poured out on this world. And not one person will escape it. Not one. If that's the end of the story, then there's no hope. But the Bible says that there is hope because judgment isn't the only way that God works. Salvation is as well. God delivers His people from their enemies in the Old Testament over and over and over again. At the same time, we have pictures and predictions of a final and permanent salvation. But then after the time of the book of the Twelve, everything goes silent. There are no new prophets raised up. There's no new encouraging word that God hasn't stopped working There's no new revelations from God. There's no new teachings. There's no new calls to stay faithful. There's none of this. It just goes completely dark, and God seems absent. Until God reveals Himself once and for all and made His unexpected work of salvation clear in Jesus. It's unexpected because, all, because while all we deserve is God's judgment, Jesus did not come to pour out judgment on us. He came to have God's judgment poured out on Him in our place. He lived a perfectly righteous life. There was no deceit found in His mouth. There was no violence. There was no strife. There was no contention. There was no destruction. None of it. And He willingly took the condemnation that we deserve. He who only deserves the commendation of God took the condemnation of God in our place. The fierce wrath that we deserve for our sin. And He was raised on the third day, meaning that His sacrifice is sufficient for our sin. And the Bible says that all who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will be saved. Saved from the wrath to come. But dear friends, rest assured, it will come. There is no not coming. It will come. And either one will endure the wrath of God forever in hell, or he or she will be saved from the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed it all on their behalf, and they are trusting in that Jesus. As you look at your life, as you look at your circumstances, as you long for God to intervene, to change things, you may think that God is absent because you're not getting the relief that you so desperately want. 
But friend, God is not absent. He gives Himself to us in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it may be quite unexpected to hear this, but the reality is that God's greatest work, whether you're a Christian or not, God's greatest work in your life is not relief from your circumstances. It is redemption from your sin. If you are not yet a Christian... This same God who has power and authority to judge the entire earth has in His Son provided a way for you to be saved from His wrath. Would you come to Him today? God is not silent. And His greatest work of unexpected grace is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bow before You, thankful for Your Word. We see ourselves surrounded by the same kind of society that Habakkuk did. We ask the same kinds of questions that he did. We long to understand what You are doing as he did. We are surprised by how you respond as he was. Give us faith to continue trusting you in the circumstances of life in a society that is opposed to you. We thank you that you did not remain distant, that you are not distant but you came near in Jesus Christ. You came and dwelt among us. And that He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We pray, Lord, that we will be those who seek to promote righteousness in our own living in this congregation, and in some measure in the world around us. We do pray for our nation. We see here and are encouraged by this text that though it may get worse, in the end, you will make all things new. Help us to cling to that hope given to us in Christ and to live faithfully until that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.